from the rest of us, we can turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, we started looking at this chapter last week. Um, we only got to verse 1. <laughs> so, we'll continue from there. Just want to wait until everybody has 1 Peter chapter 4. Botma, I'm sorry, I'm a little loud. Yeah. 1 Peter 4. It's bad enough that you have to listen to my voice. I don't want to listen to my voice. <laughs> All right, let's get verse 1. We'll start reading from verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now we looked at verse 1 last week where uh, Peter says to arm yourselves with the same mind as Christ or the same attitude as Christ. It is that attitude that Christ had that, um, that he knew that the suffering that he went through and the ultimate death had a very specific purpose and he also had that victory lying ahead of him that he could look forward to. Now this purpose was, of course, to accomplish everything that he had to accomplish on behalf of every single person that comes to him in faith. That, that was what he was here uh, to do, so that we can finally be saved if we put our faith in him. Because like Peter says in this epistle, Jesus took our sins on himself, in his own body when he was hanging there on the tree, on that cross. And as he was suffering, he looked forward, as Hebrews 12 tells us, he looked forward towards that joy that he will be entering into, knowing that he won the greatest victory that the world has ever seen. He won the victory over death, all right, um, because he rose again from the dead. He won the victory over sin because he died, all right. Just turn those around. He first died and then obviously rose from the dead. But he also won the victory over the authorities and the powers of hell, you know, when he was exalted and he went to heaven and he sat down on the right hand of God. And so Peter tells believers that we should arm ourselves with that attitude that Christ had because we know that those who are in Christ, that are born again, that are saved, okay, you, you can pick whatever term you want, but we will one day achieve a massive victory over sin when we die because of what Christ did. And that means that death isn't that scary anymore now, is it? That's a wonderful promise. You know, this past two years, we, we watched the world scramble, you know, um, and struggle a lot with this global pandemic that we found ourselves in. And everybody experienced this thing in a different way. A lot of people worldwide were really fearing death. 
like really fearing. You know, we saw the panic everywhere on TV, around us. Some of us know people that got really sick. Some of us know people that got so sick um, because of this, infect, this virus uh, that they died of it. We, we know people like that. We were constantly bombarded with the number of new infections, you know, and we have this many infections today, this brings the total to this number, and then this many deaths, and it brings the total to that number. And, and we were just constantly, constantly hearing these things. Um, we saw images from all over the world, how hospitals were overrun. It was, it was really terrible. Um, I'm thinking of a very, spe very specific case, uh, you will remember in India, how the hospitals were so overrun there, the people were di literally dying in the streets. It was that bad, but it was all just more fuel on this fire uh, for those people that already feared death. I mean, even right now, in, in the city of Shanghai in China, I don't know if you follow the news, but they've locked down this entire city. Um, for about a month now, if I'm correct, more or less a month. And as far as I understand, people are not even allowed to go out in the streets, uh, except for, you know, whenever care packages arrive, they can go and fetch that, and it's all ordered in a very orderly fashion, but they're locked up in their homes. Now, of course, we know <laughs> that much of what we've experienced and the regulations and all of these things during this pandemic uh, was an incredible overreaction. All right, we know that now. Maybe we didn't know that at first, all right? So, yeah, we can debate whether, whether the initial reaction was right or not. But, you know, I can actually f understand how you can find yourself in that fearful state, that absolute panic, um, when there is such an invisible enemy just going around, just waiting to pick us off, you know, because that's, that's sort of the story that we were hearing and seeing threatening to take your life from you, and you have no idea when it is going to happen to you, when it is your turn to die. You know, that, that then makes sense to panic if you don't even know what's going to happen after you die. I mean, especially that. That really makes people panic. But folks, as believers in Christ, we know what is going to happen to us when we die. We know. The Bible tells us. Now, I'm not saying that we should have thrown caution to the wind during this pandemic, all right, and, and just go on with our normal lives, uh, lives as if nothing is going on. We obviously need to be careful, and we obviously need to take care of our health and, and all of that. that. That makes sense. But, folks, for a Christian to be so incredibly fearful and panicked about death is totally irrational. It doesn't make sense for us to do that um, because we know Jesus got the victory. He removed the sting from death, as we saw last week. He, he removed that sting so that we don't have to be afraid of it anymore at all. Instead, we can actually embrace it when it comes, and it will come. It will come. But if you are in Christ, it's not something to, to fear, and because we know about the amazing benefits that it is going to bring our way. You know, Peter, Peter told us here in verse 1, one of the benefits is we won't have sin anymore. No more sin. I wonder if, you, if you've taken some time during this week, after I said it last week, you know, what it will be like. Maybe if you haven't, take some time today and just try to figure it out. It's, it's tough. You can't really figure it out. You know, whatever you're going to come up with, it's going to be wrong. It's going to be so much better than whatever you come up with. It's going to be amazing. 
And besides that, we're going to be with our Lord. Isn't that what we're looking forward to? Being with the Lord? It's going to be an amazing time. And like I said last week, that means that death simply becomes a door that you go through to see Christ, to be without sin, to be in that glorified body. And that then becomes the attitude that we should be arming ourselves with, which is the same attitude that Christ had. So that whether we are facing a pandemic or some other sort of illness or hardship, maybe even persecution one day, whatever we are facing, we know that the worst thing that can happen to us in this world is dying, this flesh dying. But then that also becomes the best thing that can happen to us, is dying. Because then we will be free of sin and, and we will be with Christ. Absolutely amazing. Look at verse 2. Peter writes, that he no longer, talking about the believer, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Now here we see Peter contrasting the lusts of men and the will of God, and, and it's only fitting because those two will always be polar opposites of each other. The, the lust of men won't ever want to do the will of God. Um, and we need to be clear on what we as believers need to be clear on what the will of God is if we are going to live according to it, like Peter says here. And this verse then already gives us a great indication of what the will of God is. All right? He says, well, don't live according to the lust of men. That's not what God wants for you. And we find other places in the Bible, you know, and we can do a study on that one day, and everywhere where it says, this is the will of God, this is the will of God, um, we have many instances where that is said explicitly. But he says that we should not live according to the desires of men or the lusts of men. You know, these are those sinful desires that men have. This, this is what he has in mind here. And folks, let's just be honest here. We are all constantly being tempted by those sinful desires. Every one of us. Uh, none of us are accepted, dis despite the fact that we are saved. That's just part of our lives now. And the reason for that is simple. It's because this flesh is not yet redeemed. Now, when we talk about the flesh, you know, I'm not just talking about the skin and the bones and the meat, all right? That, that's not all that. We're talking specifically about the sinful nature that is in this flesh, that, that fallen nature that comes with it. This sinful nature produces that tendency to always wanting to go towards sin and never away from it. Now, to be clear, if you don't know what the word sin means, the definition for that can be found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, where it says, sin is the transgression of the law. So when you go against the law of God or the will of God, that is sin. And that is a willful, per personal rebellion that you are performing against God. Um, uh, David acknowledged this in Psalm 51, you know, after he committed murder and adultery, he wrote this psalm. And he said there in verse 4, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He recognized that his sin was primarily against God himself. He, he, took, he took responsibility for that. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 verse 17 that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. 
And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. So the flesh will always be butting heads. It will always be fighting the spirit. If you go look at Galatians 5 verse 17, it's, it's a capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. It will all, the flesh will always be against it. It's always going to want to pull you towards sinful behaviors, you know, towards rebellion against God. Turn to James chapter 1 quickly. It's just one book to the left. James chapter 1. And um, James actually explained the process of sin to us, of where it starts and where it leads to in the end. And he did it in two simple verses. James chapter 1, verse 14. He says there, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So this is step one, basically. Well, it's a few steps in one. You see, even though you are saved, you will be tempted to sin. You will. It's just part of it. And your temptation is going to be different than mine. All right? we, we all have our own because we all have different weaknesses. We all have different predispositions on, and whatever it may be. My flesh has different lusts than your flesh has. And that's why the temptations differ. But even though the lusts are different the level of danger and the ultimate end result of sin is the same. That's, that's where it becomes the same. You know, the, this is almost like when you go fishing, and, that, and I think this is sort of the, the picture that James gets at here. You know, I've only gone fishing about three times in my life now. I've enjoyed every bit of it. But I've learned a little bit, uh, just a few things, just picked up a few things. And one of it was that if you want to catch a certain type of fish, you need to use a certain type of bait, isn't it? You know, some fish, they like it when you put a piece of pup, millipup, you know, on, on the hook. Uh, other fish like something that's squirming around, like maybe a worm on the hook or, or some sort of lure that looks like a little animal that's swimming or whatever. Some, some fish like something big, all right, to, to bait them. Some fish like something smaller. It really all depends on the type of fish that you want to catch. And if I'm correct, and you guys can help me, those fishermen around here, but if I'm correct, it's, it's almost as if in certain dams or in certain rivers, if you want to catch a type of fish, you might use a little bit of a different bait than you would use at another location. All right, so every fish has his own type of bait that, that really attracts him. And that's the picture here in James 1, verse 14, that every person's flesh is tempted by another type of bait. Everyone. Some people are enticed by the idea of sexual sin. Other people are enticed by alcohol or some sort of drug, you know. Um, some people are enticed by money. That, that can be uh, something that gets you. But you get the picture. We can go on and on and list, list examples, but you, you get the picture here. There are many things that can entice this lust in your flesh, that can sort of awaken this lust uh, in your flesh. And that is where the temptation then comes from. When your lusts are, call it, activated <laughs> by, by that specific thing that is enticing you or, or, or things that might be enticing you. And it normally comes with a lot of good promises. It tells you, well, I mean, let's just take the edge off a bit. You know, you've, you've had a rough time. You deserve this. You know, and, you know yeah, you've, you've tried to stay away from it, but really... Or one time really hurt? Ah, I don't know. You know, that's the type of thing that the flesh or this temptation will try to convince you of. It will promise you that you will 
have a better relationship with this person. Or, or maybe you will become popular in that crowd that you really want to be popular in. You know, people that you admire maybe or something like that. Some of these promises can be that you can just escape reality for a bit. Just a little bit. I mean, life is tough. And it can get tough. But so just, just go. Just go here for, it, for just a moment. You know? Just escape it for a while so you don't have to face your own problems. And then you take the bait. And you get drawn away like that fish gets drawn away after biting the hook. And then verse 15 kicks in. He says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Okay, that's the rest of the process. So when you give in to that temptation and lust gets its way, it brings forth the act of sin. Whatever that sinful act is, and sin then in turn brings forth death. We know that the wages of sin is death, right? It brings forth death. It, that's the only fruit that can come from sin. So it's all just a total waste in the end, really. And this is the process that we should be fighting as believers for the rest of our days as we are living in this flesh. Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 23 that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's the only part of us that's not saved yet. That's not converted yet. But it will be converted one day. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be transformed in that same type of body that the Lord had when He rose again from the dead at that moment of the rapture. This is going to be a wonderful day, right? And that's, that's when we say goodbye to sin. If we don't die before that, we say goodbye to sin, all right, and temptation and all of that. But until then, we'll, we're going to have to be engaged in this battle, um, with this sinful flesh. Folks, this is the hope that we have in Christ, is that we're going to be rid of these things. And so since we are heading towards that final destination of holiness, all right, um, after death, obviously, we, we should be living the remainder of our lives up to that point, pursuing that goal. You might not reach it while you are still alive, but you should be growing in that direction constantly, day by day, renewing your mind and, and putting off the flesh, you know, crucifying the flesh like we read in Romans. And this is a daily process, regardless of what it might cost you in the end. But we should be doing whatever we can to be staying away from sin. Whatever we can. It is sin that killed our Lord. <laughs> it was because of sin. And that's a great reason already to, to stay away. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. So if something just looks bad, if it just looks evil or sinful, stay away from it. Just run the other direction. That actually goes well with the analogy of the fish, I think, you know. If the fish doesn't go near the lure that's placed there, you know, and sort of disguising the hook, then, well, he will never be caught. He will never, never go away, you know, and just vanish like the other fish his other friends did, you know. I mean, if you can just imagine this, when does a ball of pup just fall in a dam? <laughs> it doesn't happen, right? Fish aren't that smart. And the strange thing is, every time it falls in a dam, somebody disappears. <laughs> Uh, you would think that they would get the picture at some point. They just don't. They're too stupid. But we shouldn't be as stupid as fish. All right? 
we, should, we, can, we have many examples around us uh, of this. So let's stay away from that evil. Let's just stay away. If you see it, stay away. Don't even go near it. Don't touch it. Just go the other way. And we, of course, know from the Bible that God hates sin. I think that's the, one of the most obvious statements that anybody has ever made from a pulpit. But God hates sin. And that's abundantly clear throughout Scripture um, that He hates sin. But, folks, because God hates sin, because our Father hates sin that much, we should also hate sin that much. Because we're trying to be like Christ, aren't we? We're trying to be conformed to His image. Well, then if He hates it, we should hate it. That just, that just follows necessarily. God hates sin so much that He did so much to save us from the penalty of sin. So we should also hate it. This hatred should drive us to becoming more and more sanctified by living according to, like, like Peter says, according to the will of God. That's what we should be pursuing. That's what we should be doing day by day by day. All right, enough of that. Verse 3, he says, oh, let's go back to First Peter, sorry. <laughs> Not James. All right, verse 3. He says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So Peter says here that we should be living the rest of our lives, since the day that you got saved, the rest of your time in the flesh, um, we, we should be living according to the will of God. That's, that's what we should be doing. Because, he says here, we've spent enough time doing the will of the Gentiles. I mean, I don't know when you got saved, but I mean, from that, from up to that point, you've already spent a lot of time living according to the will of the Gentiles, doing the things that they love to do. And however long time it was, it was enough. It really was enough. When we were saved, we were washed clean from our sins, weren't we? Completely clean. And as believers, we should then leave those things that we've been washed of behind because we've got a new nature, a new life, so leave all the old things behind. It doesn't make sense to keep on dragging that along with you. It doesn't make sense at all. Um, we now have a new life in Christ. You know, the, the, the lives that we used to lead was only, or were only, <laughs> leading us towards judgment and hell and the lake of fire in the end. That's, that's where we were headed. But Christ saved us from that. So why do we still want to keep on dragging these things around? doesn't make sense at all. Um, it doesn't make sense to live according to the lusts of men. And so Peter says that the, the time for that, for those things, have passed. It's done. Leave it behind you. And then he mentions some examples of the things that they used to do, the believers now that he's writing to, and, and also that the Gentiles, of course, still love to do. First off, he says um, there in, in verse Three, when we walked in lasciviousness. Now, lasciviousness is not necessarily a word that you're familiar with. I know I am not. Well, I'm now because I, I studied it out. But <laughs> um, lasciviousness points to um, something, somebody that is unrestrained in their sin. They just go for it, especially sexual sins. All right? And we are seeing a lot of that around us now, don't we? A lot 
I mean, a lot of unrestrained sexual sins. And it's been like this forever. Uh, you know, I say forever, but you know, since man, man sinned. It's always been like this. And this is a sin that is very often flaunted around, isn't it? You know, people brag about the type of things that they've been doing without any sense of embarrassment. It's almost as if they see it as some sort of badge of honor, that whatever they did. And Peter says, that is how you were before you came to Christ. Remember that. You were living in that. The next example that he mentions is lusts. Lust is fitting because it, it, it goes along with lasciviousness because it is your lust that will drive you towards that lascivious type of living or that type, indulging in that type of sins. The next one he says is excess of wine. Let's get a synonym for that, drunkenness. Just being drunk, all right? This speaks of somebody that, that likes to get drunk any chance they get. Now it's not necessarily only talking about alcoholics though it most certainly includes an alcoholic, but it also includes this habit of certain people to just get drunk at whatever occasion they get to, to be drunk at. You know, it's, it's sort of like, and, and you've probably noticed this, we've sort of got this cultural movement going that people like to get drunk on the weekends or public holidays or just get-togethers. Let's make Wednesday, Klein Saturday, you know, little, little Saturday, you know, let's just get drunk. Uh, or any other opportunity that arises, they just want to get drunk. That's, that's cool, if I can put it that way. It's, it, like I said, it's a badge of honor. You, you know about the things I'm talking about, I'm sure. Now, next Peter calls out revelings. Revelings, and as with most things in this list, it all fits together. Revelings refers to wild parties, such as the ones that we are used to see happening in Trimpak on occasion, isn't it? That's, those are some wild parties. You know, it speaks about people getting drunk together. People that, that start to sing loudly, they're staggering around in the streets, causing all sorts of disturbances and problems. And we've all seen that before, you know, and it's, it's, it's a sad sight to see. Um, but perhaps you were part of stuff like that before you got saved. Remember that. The next two things in the list uh, falls in line with this, and that's uh, banquetings is the next one. Well, banquetings are just more get-togethers and just another excuse to get drunk to get drunk. All right? That's it. And lastly, he mentions abominable idolatries. Now, when I looked at this, you know, it, it, it really looks strange at first glance when he says abominable idolatries. It's almost like saying it's a round circle, all right? So a circle is round. I, I can't remember what the term is for that, but nobody, nobody would have understood that anyway. But <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> but aren't all idolatries abominable? Of course they are, right? And these people that, um, or this culture that Peter was writing to, they were engaging in all sorts of idolatries in that time. And, well, like he says here, God finds that abominable. Terrible, horrible, sinful, evil. And in the, in the time that Peter wrote this, the people would normally get involved in the rest of the things that we find in this verse, and they would do it in the name of their false gods to somehow worship them. You know, it's, uh, when I think about this, it's almost like you're looking for an excuse. <laughs> All right, well, okay, no, this God likes it when I do this, so let, let me do this. But these are the type of things that the Gentiles engage in. When I say Gentiles, I mean unbelievers, 
right? Unbelievers, those that are not saved. And folks, in 2,000 years, nothing has changed. <laughs> we see these things around us all the time. People are still getting drunk just for the sake of getting drunk. They love that. They are still throwing themselves towards all sorts of sexual sins. They, they like having wild parties and all, all of these things, you know. That's the path that the Gentiles are on, and they love it. They love it. They enjoy it. They, they love their sin. And that's the stuff that we engaged in before we got saved. But n- notice that all these things that he's mentioning here are things that are socially acceptable. Nobody, nobody thinks any worse of you if you engage in these things. Um, now, sure, you can't show up to work drunk out of your mind, of course, but on the weekends, have at it. Have as much as you want, you know? And that then becomes the stories that you bring back to work and you tell people, oh man, you won't believe how much I drank this, this weekend. I had this and this and this. I slept with this woman or this man or whatever it was. Okay? <laughs> you see, it is acceptable to the world to do these type of things. It is acceptable. It's most certainly not acceptable with God, but the world will cheer you on if you do that. They will think you're something great. So why is Peter mentioning these things? Well, like I said, he wants believers to remember that they also engaged in these type of things before the Lord saved them. The Lord brought you out of this. He's changed you. He wants us to remember all of the problems, all of the misery, all of the pain that comes along with that sort of lifestyle. Some of you are still carrying the the consequences of the things you've done before you got saved. That's stuff that will go with you. But folks, we are supposed, as believers in Christ, we are supposed to be different and to live the rest of our lives, not like the Gentiles live, all right? Not being tempted in those things that they are doing or their lusts, but we should be living according to how God wants us to live, according to His will. Now something I sort of glossed over in in verse 3, is he says, when we walked in lasciviousness, we walked in these things before we got saved. When he says we walked, it means that was our way of life before we got saved. We were engaged in this way of life that the Gentiles are engaged in. And now, after you got saved, the Gentiles are now, or you know, the unbelievers, they are finding it very strange you know, that, that you don't go with them anymore. That's the point of verse 4. Let's read verse 4. Wherein they think, now this they, or those Gentiles, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Now in this context, riot means wild and uncontrollable behavior. All right? And I think that's actually very fitting uh, in this context, but if you think about the riots that we see outside, people burning stuff, that's wild and uncontrollable behavior as well, right? And it's very fitting if, if you look at the things that we find there in verse 3. Now, Peter says that the unbelievers run toward an excess of riot. They can't get enough of it. All right? It's an excess. It's more than enough. And they are very intentional in what they are doing. That's indicated by saying they're running towards it. All right? they're, they're intentional. They want to do that. Their minds are so corrupt that they can only think about how and when they will next indulge in these sins. That's the aim. That's, that's the next aim. And it's the most normal thing in the world to them 
to run towards this excess of riot. It's not strange to them. And Peter says that they actually think that you are strange for not running with them. <laughs> You're the freak. <laughs> you see, un- unbelievers notice that things have changed in your life. They see it. They notice it very quickly. But they don't understand why you don't want to do those things with them anymore. They just don't get it. Maybe you think, they think that you think, well, you're now better than us, you know. Or they will say, well, you're just a hypocrite, you know. Just last week you were hanging out with me at this and this place. They don't understand. They don't understand what the Lord has done in your life, uh, regardless of how many times you actually try to explain it to them. They just don't get it. If they don't have the Lord, they don't get it. And so they even find it offensive if you start declining their invitations since you got saved, because, and they become resentful against you. Uh, they will start to laugh at you. They will start to speak about you behind your back. They, they will even insult you to your face because of what, uh, you know, the change. Some of you have had that happen to you, you know, where, where those people that you thought were your friends, they started to turn against you after you got saved. And they started to speak evil of you, like, like Peter says here, And folks, that is unfortunately to be expected. Um, So yeah, get ready for that if you haven't experienced that yet. But back in the time when Peter wrote this, we see that it was was the fact that that Christians didn't want to participate in these socially acceptable amusements, these ceremonies and things, the the idol worship and, and the immoral parties and all of that, you know, and that caused the unbelievers to start to slander them, to hate them. And in the end, this led to their unjust persecution um, and suffering for the sake of righteousness, which is why we have most of this epistle. It's because of the things that they were going through. And we need to be ready for that, folks. We need to be firm in our faith, and we need to leave those things that we did before we got saved behind us. Don't be tempted again, you know, because I, I want my friends to like me again, right? They're hating me now because of Christ. Well, let me just go with them one more time. Okay, one more time. What? No. Don't be tempted by that. You have a new nature now after you got saved, a brand new nature. And we want to. This nature causes us to want to live according to the will of God. So pursue that. Now, in verse 5 here, Peter assures his readers that those that, he, that are speaking evil against them and persecute them for not participating in these things with them will be judged for that. Look at verse 5. He says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? God is ready to judge them. He's ready for it. You see, what these unbelievers didn't realize was that they were building up an enormous debt to God uh, because of the way that they, well, live, obviously, but the way that they treated God's children. And they will spend all of eternity paying back that debt. It's an unpayable debt. That's why they will just keep on paying it. God is going to hold them accountable for however they treated his children. And those that were alive when Peter wrote this, that's the quick that he, that he says, right? It's not somebody that's fast, <laughs> all right? Uh, but those that are alive and those that were already dead were, will all be judged for that. And this is something that believers can actually take great comfort in. Um, that in the end, 
Folks, God will make sure that justice is served. He will. He really will. Whether it is because you were suffering unjustly like these people or if you were persecuted like these people for your faith or whatever else somebody did to you, God will make sure that that person gives an account of what they did and he will be judged. He will. Paul wrote about this. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll just see what Paul wrote about this, paying back um, this unrighteousness to, the, to those people. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense, to pay back, right? To recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. If these people that persecute Christians and treat them unjustly didn't go to Christ to be saved before they died, they will one day stand before Jesus Himself in front of him where he's sitting there on his great white throne as we read in Revelation chapter 20 and they will face this eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. God is going to make sure that justice gets served. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. Peter continues, for for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they, might, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. This actually takes us back to verse 1, and well, actually even before that, Peter says that the gospel was preached to them that are dead. These are simply the people that were dead at the time that Peter wrote this epistle. And so while they were alive, the gospel was preached to them, and they believed, and they were saved. It's only people that are currently alive that are able to be saved, all right? But now they're dead. And at this time, they've been dead for more than 2,000 years. Some of them might even have died because of their faith. Maybe they were persecuted or, or, or somehow tortured to death or whatever. So even though they were judged by men while they were still in the flesh, all right, uh, th that is literally even being put to death, they are now alive in the Spirit. That's alive. And that sounds like what we read in, you can just go back to chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, you see it there, but quickened by the Spirit. He was put to death in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit. Uh, even though Jesus was dead, even though his body lie, lied in that grave, he was still alive in the Spirit. He was still alive. And that also goes for these believers. Even though their bodies are dead, right, their spirits are alive because they believed the gospel. Which is a wonderful thing to think about, right? That when a believer dies, that's not the end of him. 
He keeps on living. He's with the Lord. You know, we're looking forward, like Paul says, to be absent from the body and being present with the Lord. That's where they are. And we spoke about some of this last week. But, folks, you see, it doesn't matter what people do to us if, we, if you are saved. In the end, we are still and we will still be victorious because of what Christ did. And so staying away from sin when you are facing a lot of trouble because of it is worth every bit of it. It really is. Even if you have to die for it, it's still worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exceedingly great promises that we have in Christ. We thank you so much, Lord, that... We can look at these things, Lord, and we can gather some hope from it. Well, a lot of hope. <laughs> and we thank you, Lord, that, that you are working in our hearts. Please remind us of these things. Some of us might not necessarily need it right now, but we might need it in the future. Some of us really do need it, Lord, and I ask that you will just help us all, that the enemy won't come and steal these seed out of our hearts and let this knowledge that we got, Lord, or this teaching, even though most of it might not be new, that it will just bear fruit for, for you in the end. Lord, please help us to stay firm in the faith, not to deny you in any way, even the smallest way. Help us to stay true to you because you are staying true to us. I thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you are always faithful. Please be with us for the rest of this day and the service to come as well. And Lord, please keep on working in us and um, teaching us and keep on working in our hearts as we leave today as well so that, so that we may be useful to you and live according to your will. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.